Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canada making bold claims at COP26 to the chagrin of Premier Jason Kenney. Jessica Green, professor of political science at University of Toronto, tells us exactly why. Elon Musk says he will donate $6 billion to solve world hunger, but he wants to know where the money's going. Moshe Lander, senior economist lecturer at Concordia University, will fill us in. And the opposition is calling for the flags to be raised back up from half-mast now that the work of the Reconciliation Committee is underway. Tasha Carradine, lecturer at McGill University, will have all the details on that. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Inflation. And, you know, we were always of the opinion that uh, that once the pandemic started to die down, and, and please God, I think we're at that stage, although we're st- still experiencing it, as the economy started to open up, uh, that things were going to get fine. People were going to go back to work. Uh, prices were going to level off. And, and, you know, we're not going to necessarily pick up where we left off, uh, but we're going to be in much better shape. Well, it's not happening the way that people had anticipated. Uh, prices are going up. Inflation is a concern right now. Uh, the president of the Bank of Canada is concerned about this. Uh, certainly uh, those who supply food and, and other goods to us are supply chain uh, conscious about what's happening. And we're seeing rising prices. Well, uh, a new report out uh, indicates right now that uh, if you're looking for relief from some of those higher grocery prices, it's not going to happen anytime soon. In fact, uh, it might actually be going the other way. Uh, interesting announcement here from the Canadian Dairy, Dairy Commission, which is recommending an 8.4% increase in farm gate meal prices. That's a larger hike than had been anticipated. Other products are, are in similar situations. So what are we going to do as consumers? And, and what can government do, if anything, to try to, to assist us in here and try to get it back on some even keel? I want to bring Janet Music into the conversation. Janet is a research program coordinator with the Agri-Food Analytics uh, Lab Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. Uh, Janet, a pleasure to have you back on the program today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about these numbers, first of all. As I mentioned in the preamble just before you joined us here, uh, I don't think a lot of us saw this coming. I mean, we weren't anticipating inflation as one of the the net results, of course, of coming out of the pandemic. Uh, but I guess with supply chain issues and things of this nature, uh, it's happening right now. But even the fact that it's happening, are you surprised at how rapidly the prices have gone up? Well, to be frank, nothing really surprises me after <laughs> we experienced a global pandemic. Um, I think in some respects, we did respect um, expect this to happen. Um, but like you said, it has been a little bit higher than I think most people want. And it is happening fast, which can be alarming, especially if you're, you know, underemployed or precariously employed or, you know, have a large family. Well, you want to put food on the table, right? And, and your point's well taken. I mean, not everybody is back to full employment right now. Uh, you know, we're, we're starting to improve things in Ontario, right? But, but uh, you know, we're not financially where we were before. There's some concern about that. Those who still feel as if they need uh, some government assistance programs to get back on their feet economically are, are fully cognizant of the fact that uh, there's a sunset clause on just about all of those programs right now. So that's not going to be with us forever. And And when they see stuff like this, uh, that higher prices are going to be with us for quite some time, it looks like, into the future right now. Uh, I can see there's some concern here with, the, with, with families and saying, how are we going to be able to cope with this? Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's what's interesting about you know the dairy announcement is that it almost implies that the dairy sector is somehow special, but it's actually across the board. You know, we talked recently about 
bacon, um, you know, beef prices, center of the store, you know, cooking oil. And, you know, I think when it comes to dairy, you know, that plays a big life, uh, a big piece in people's dietary lives, right? So, you know, I can see why dairy especially would be alarming to consumers. Well, because we're, I guess, not just impacted by it, but we're cognizant of it. I mean, I have been accused of of not paying attention to prices, and and you know, you know, I'll come back from the grocery store. My wife said, "Well, how much was that? Was you know the butter or whatever?" I, said, I don't know. He said, "We need a butter. I don't got butter. I just but now I'm paying attention because because we're seeing that the the increases here are significant in just about everything. As you say, I know that this report talks about the dairy industry and the products that we're buying in that section of the grocery store. Uh, but the price of bread has gone up. The price of meat has, has, has skyrocketed in some circles. Uh, is it all supply chain or is there something else going on here? It's certainly supply chain, um, which, you know, has been brought on by COVID-19. And so, you know, if you think about some of those commodities or even the packaging some of our products come in, those are all shipped from other places around the globe. And so things have been caught up in ports for sure. But I also think we can't um, forget about some of the climate change-driven uh, weather patterns that we've experienced in Canada just this past year alone. So drought-like conditions out west and wildfires in California, all of those things kind of work together to shorten the supply. Um, and then, of course, there's increased demand from Canadians as we've reached our vaccine kind of thresholds and we start going back out to restaurants and, and celebrating with friends and, you know, eating more food, all of these things kind of work together to rise, to raise prices. The, yeah, the numbers here are, are, well, we should say troubling, I suppose. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, uh, of course, the analog at Dalhousie, uh, one of your uh, Confederates, has talked about uh, perhaps a 10% increase in the price of milk and dairy products like butter, cheese, and yogurt, uh, maybe even as high as 15% in the short term. Uh, what are we looking for here to try to find some relief on this? Are we just hoping that the supply chain issues work themselves out, or is there something more that we can do to try to, to circumvent what seems to be a, a growing problem here? Well, for those of us who have the luxury of just paying more at retail, we will do that to keep consuming the goods that we love, right? And so, you know, if we love cheese and we can afford it, we're going to keep buying cheese. But I think now more than ever, we're starting to see some products that rival uh, some of those things that didn't have rivals before. So, you know, maybe oat milk or soy milk or almond milk to put in your coffee, Perhaps that's going to be cheaper in the short run. And, and Canadians can switch now when there really wasn't an alternative to dairy in the past. Even five years ago, you really didn't have a significant alternative. Um, but it's not just dairy. You know, families or, or people with many kids, they're going to have to change their shopping habits. And so they're going to start price comparing and going to more than one retailer People are couponing now in ways that we we weren't uh, in the recent past, but, you know, coming back. And I think people are going into the store and collecting those Enjoy Tonight products. So especially at the meat counter, you can get really good discounts. And then at the end of the day, we're just going to have to not buy as much. It just won't be possible um, for some people. 
it's I, I don't know if we're going to go back to those days, but just as you were describing that, though, Janet, it reminded me of, uh, I, I guess it was a long, long time ago, not that long ago, I suppose, for those of us that had to experience it, uh, where you do your grocery shopping was like an, an all-weekend exercise. You know, you'd look at the flyers, you'd look at, you know, the the the, the ad for Sobeys, and here's the, 14, the Loblaws ad, and, and on and on, and say, okay, I can get my meat here, but I'm going to have to get the dairy products over here because they're a little bit cheaper. Over to the, so you're actually going to three or four different stores. Uh, and like you say, and, and looking for coupons and, you know, okay, there's 10 cents or 10% off that or something like that. Uh, I think a lot of us abandon that sort of thing, but it kind of looks like we're heading back in that direction. That's right. And so we know from just before the pandemic, when we were looking at this, that convenience was kind of up there with price um, when people were going to the grocery store. And so, you know, if you're taking your kids to hockey or to soccer or, to, you know, gymnastics, you know, you're not spending that time looking around trying to get the best deals because you're you're busy. You're very busy. Um, but now price is back on top as the main driver for how people are shopping, especially if they have a lot of people around the table. And so gone maybe are those days where you just go in on Saturday morning, you get a big load of groceries, and then you're done for the week. I think that people are going to change their behavior because it's just not going to be, it'll be too expensive to shop that way. And and we're, I, I suppose here in Canada, uh, heading into what I guess is going to be the most problematic time of year. I mean, it's it's heading towards winter. It's going to get cold here. Uh, we're not growing a whole lot of stuff in this country this time of year. So you're right. When If you want to talk about, well, fruits and vegetables, things of that ilk, uh, we're probably ex- importing an awful lot of that stuff. I mean, you know, you're going to buy tomatoes right now. And are they from Mexico? Are they from, you know, wherever in situations like that? And, of course, that means they have to be transported from wherever they're being grown up to here. And that's going to increase the cost. So we're, we're getting hit with a kind of a double whammy here, aren't we? That's right. And so we've been watching kind of the news on, on gas and oil prices and they're rising um, across the globe. And so that's not just from Mexico to Canada, but that's from trading partners in the Middle East and in Asia. So I don't think there's any escaping that. And you're right. In a, in a country like Canada, we have such a wide variety of fresh fruits and vegetables to us, available to us all year round. There is no other um, uh, option for them to be more expensive if we still want to consume them. What's this doing to the industry? Uh, what's this doing to farmers, for instance, uh, those who are producing these products? I mean, if we're not buying them, uh, and, and the, you know, as you say, that it's all about supply and demand. If the demand is not there, uh, they have to be concerned about their long-term future, too, I would think. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, because I've heard of this happening where people are starting to look for alternatives. You know, if, if milk is too expensive, well, let's look at some of the other things that are on there because there's no shortage of other products on the shelves right now that may actually act as substitutes. Yeah, I can only imagine that it must be demoralizing to be producing food in this economic climate. May, you know, I, I really feel for people all along the food chain, farmers and producers, everybody, including consumers, you know, you can't not eat. And farmers are consumers as well. And so it must be quite stressful um, knowing that if I'm, if I'm to survive, I need to raise my prices. And that is going to affect other people. So I, can't, I can only imagine how stressful this is for everybody involved. Um, and I don't know what comfort there is to say, you know, we're all in this together because it's not a comforting. <laughs> no. It's not really a comforting thing to say. 
And, and I guess, because I know your research at Dalhousie indicates that, uh, you know, the people in this industry, in the agriculture, the agri-food industry especially, uh, are facing some of the same challenges we've talked about in other sectors. I mean, you know, the the, the, the farmer that's, that's, you know, well, it's a dairy farmer, whatever the case might be. Uh, I mean, they've got costs. I mean, you know, the, there's the feed, there's the, the fertilizer costs, there's the, uh, the the equipment that they have to use here. I mean, that's, that stuff is not cheap. And those prices have gone up as, as well. Uh, which means there's an increased demand there. I mean, they want to produce this product. They want to make sure that there's going to be a market for it. If the stuff's not selling, uh, and these guys are getting deeper and deeper in debt, you have to wonder about their viability too. Yeah, that's right. And and cynically, we call that market correction, right? You know, we don't really talk about the human cost of what's involved when the market is readjusting to these new climate conditions, both literally, literally and figuratively. Um, and so farming, not just dairy farming, but all farming is an investment. It's, you know, it's, it's not like it is presented, you know, in, in children's toys where the farmer is wearing overalls and he's got a little cow. And it's, these, are, these are scientific operations that people invest a lot of money and, and time and their whole lives into. And so just... As we, you know, in the summer felt bad for food service workers, you know, and when they, restaurants were closing and, and we, they were losing their jobs and having to take serve, we should also have room in our hearts for people who are running farms because it's the same situation for them, um, but they're largely hidden from us. Is there going to be pressure on government here to try to step in and, and try to alleviate this? I mean, uh, in, in, I mean, in the past, they've offered subsidy programs to try to, to keep some of these farms operational. Uh, I, I know that, I guess now because of the new NAFTA agreement and uh, how that was such a sticky point, the compensation and the, and the assistance for farmers, uh, a lot of the U.S. negotiators were kind of crazy about that. Are, are they running the risk, though, of, of contravening uh, some of the, the, uh, the agreements in the new NAFTA if they step in here and say we need to help the farming industry, especially the dairy industry? Yeah, it's super complicated. And, you know, I remember those talks and that feels like a lifetime ago in some respects because we've been so consumed with staying safe in the pandemic. But those problems didn't go away. Um, and like other areas of society, I think COVID has really kind of shown where the weak spots are and some of the supply chain issues we have in this country. And so, you know, the government has offered subsidies in the past, and they've offered subsidies to those aforementioned restaurant workers the past year. And so if, if, if one section of society is worthy of, of subsidies, then shouldn't we all be, I guess? Um, I luckily don't have to make those decisions, but, um, you know, in some respects, food is too big to fail, right? So it's not like we can just close down all the farms across Canada and we'll just import it all. It's just not feasible. And so how they step in will be interesting to, to see. And, and I know that there are attempts here. I mean, you know, there's a big move towards earth to table in many communities, and that's a good thing uh, to, to buy local and, and to do that. But as you say, because of the winter months, I know there's some hothouse uh, operations that are going on that are going to try to maintain some of the, the fruit and vegetables that we can still pick up and maybe get them locally. But for the most part, uh, we're going to be concerned about that. And, and, you know, if you're, you're, you know, wandering into a restaurant for the first time in months thinking, OK, I want to support this sector. And you start looking, oh, my God, the prices have gone up. I mean, that may scare you off of that, too. So that this is this is not an isolated situation. This is affecting just about every part of the economic recovery, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we 
I know people are really um, enamored with that idea of local food and farm to fork, that idea. But, you know, in some respects, that will raise food prices because mm-hmm. when we're shipping in those fresh uh, produce from, from Mexico or Chile, we're getting economies of scale. And so we're able to ship a lot of um, produce in um, for a lower price because there's just so much of it. Um, but if you're just getting uh, your vegetables from a local farm, well, that farmer needs a living wage and is not able to produce the sheer amount of produce that we can get from multiple farms in the South. So uh, we have to be careful when we think about local food being better because it may be closer, but it could also serve to rise prices. But in terms of the overall economy, you're right. Everything everything is actually being affected by oil prices especially. Um, and, and food prices will play a significant role in the health and well-being of families because um, a bigger chunk of their paycheck is going to have to go through uh, retailer, food retailers, which leaves less money for you know, clothing or vacations or school supplies, you name it. It's uh, it's going to have an impact. Uh, we're so thankful that uh, that you guys are doing the research that you do at Dalhousie, of course, with the uh, agri-food analytics uh, to bring us up to speed on what's happening. And, uh, well, we'll see just how, if uh, any government uh, response to this is going to maybe offer some sort of relief. Uh, Janet, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and uh, for all the stats on this uh, to help us uh, understand exactly what's happening. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Yes, you too. Janet Music, uh, who is a research program coordinator at Dalhousie University with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab faculty there. And uh, we've uh, tapped into their expertise so many different times here to try to get a read on what's happening. But uh, you've noticed this if you've been to the grocery store. Prices are going up. And according to these uh, results, uh, it's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future anyway. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Are the super rich the answer to ending world poverty? Well, the United Nations uh, World Food Program Executive Director David Beasley challenged uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and other billionaires uh, in a CNN interview saying, look, if they all gave $6 billion, uh, it would help to alleviate world hunger. It's calling on the super rich to do more. Well, Musk responded and said, hey, I'll take your challenge. Uh, He says, you show me where you spend the money and I'll give you the $6 billion. Uh, I want to talk about the implications of this because it's interesting uh, what's happening here and, and how the, the, uh, the super rich are responding to this. Uh, Moshe Lander is a senior economist lecturer at Concordia University, joining us on the Bill Keller Show uh, to talk about this. Uh, Moshe, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Always my pleasure. We, we may have to, as we mentioned, uh, my producer mentioned, we have to jump in here when the, the premier makes his announcement uh, about minimum wage. He's painfully late for just about everything. So we may have the hour here. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, neither you nor I have the $6 billion or the pieces of it that, that guys like Elon Musk do. Uh, I know that politicians in the past, Moshe, have always said, look, we're going to tax the super rich. It was something Jagmeet Singh talked about here uh, in the last election. Joe Biden even mentioned uh, down in the United States. Uh, Are the super rich and and tapping in for more of their own money actually going to solve some of the problems we're facing globally now? Well, it'll certainly raise the money to throw at the problems. I don't know that it's going to solve the problems. Usually the, the problems of things like hunger, malnutrition, and stuff like that, that, that's not related to a lack of funding. It's usually uh, interventionist government policy that's making things more difficult to solve those problems. And so uh, you can tax them as much as you want. I, I don't think that's 
that's the entire solution. The other thing, and you just touched on it, and it's, it's something people don't seem to want to talk a whole lot about, but we need to, and that's the system itself. And I think we've all seen the breakdowns over the years, haven't we, about different charitable organizations uh, that we know, you know, have every intention of doing good work in, in some of these global uh, problems that we're facing. Uh, but there's administrative costs and, and there's this and there's that. And when you see the breakdown on how much of that money actually goes toward dealing with the people that are, are experiencing the problem, it becomes frustrating. And I think that's basically what Musk is talking about here, isn't it, Moshe, that said, look, at, uh, yeah, I can give you $6 billion. I can do that tomorrow. Uh, but where are you going to spend it? And, and how are you going to use it? And, and I, I think that's a valid question. I, I definitely agree that administrative costs are usually going to uh, swallow up a good portion of that. But it's also interventionist policies and things like uh, providing guaranteed support payments for farmers or uh, by giving into lobbyists that want to stick with the status quo. And so these sorts of things gum up the marketplace where, you know, normally a signal would be sent, let's say, that if a particular crop is very valuable right now, this would induce people to want to plant that crop to take advantage of it. If, on the other hand, you're trying to hold prices down because this is a crop that's also consumed by your voters, uh, then that signal is never sent to producers to increase production. And so next thing you know, you have a bunch of people that want to buy subsidized crops, and you have a bunch of producers that don't want to plant those crops. And guess what you have? You have starvation. You have people that are going hungry uh, because there's just not enough crop to go around. And so sometimes it's an issue of standing up to those lobbyists. Uh, and weird as it sounds, that sometimes requires administrative costs to, to combat their position that this is a threat to our way of life or this is a threat to our history or this is a threat to the way we're used to doing things. And you start throwing in food security and all of a sudden you can have some really major problems that will not be solved with 6 or $60 billion. When do we get our heads around this problem? That you know, Because I think you're right. I think, and maybe there's some political expediency to making statements like this, to say, oh, then just throw more money at the problem, and, and that's going to make it go away. It doesn't. It never has. And, and it's not just dealing with world hunger. I mean, we can talk even about our, our medical system in this country and, and, you know, the hue and cry from politicians, especially at the provincial level, saying, give us more money, give us more money, uh, as if that's going to solve the problem. It, and you know, if, if Bezos responds this in like fashion as, as Elon Musk did, and there's $12 billion that they didn't have at the beginning of the week that they have now. I think we all know that that's not going to solve the problem. And it's, it's really about how effectively and where that money is spent, isn't it? it? It is in part. And, you know, why it doesn't happen is because $6 billion eliminates world hunger is extremely headline grabbing. Uh, dismantling a milk marketing board doesn't quite sound as thrilling as, you know, we're that close to solving uh, a global scourge with $6 billion. And of course, figuring that that can just come from one person rather than government, rather than taxpayers, it, it sounds nice and easy. And so it's the type of thing that people aren't prepared to combat the idea that in order to eliminate world hunger, you have to stand up to a lobbyist of farmers that would descend on any legislature within minutes screaming that this is a threat to everything that we hold dear. And, you know, it's not surprising that in Canada we have huge groups uh, of, of lobbyists that are going to try and protect the status quo, even though they understand full well the, the costs that are going to come with it. It's just that the voter doesn't want to have to engage with the idea that, all right, are, are we really prepared to stare them down and uh, deal with that? Or is it just easier to throw money and, and that'll make it go away? And when, of course, the problem doesn't go away, then the solution is just, well, then let's throw more money at it and see what happens. 
it, it's really, I guess, essentially a, a situation of supply and demand here. And anytime anybody upsets that balance, I guess they're going to be winners and losers. And uh, those lobbyists want to make sure that their clients aren't the losers. And that's it. And it's usually that, you know, the inevitable scare tactic is that, look, if we're going to try and eliminate world hunger, then one of the solutions is that the market has to be able to send out a signal to producers to plant more crops. But the only signal that that's going to, to work with is higher prices. And so if consumers realize that, wait a second, higher prices means that I'm going to pay more at the grocery store, uh, that's not a good idea. So you know what? Let the farmers have whatever they want. It, it kind of becomes a, a reinforcing idea that it's hard to convince uh, voters that that the solution to the problem is sometimes higher prices and and much as that might hurt us it actually alleviates that uh, huge distortion that's coming about that we're getting subsidized food prices because farmers are getting subsidies but we're also paying for that through taxes and so if you kind of put the all-in price that we're paying it's not just the price that we're paying at the grocery store but when you add in the tax costs it's just merely a matter of shifting that around and saying why don't you just pay that entire cost at the grocery store, uh, and you're still effectively paying the same amount, but there's actually going to be more food uh, on the shelves, which means that you're going to be able to alleviate those, those hunger issues that, especially in poorer countries, they're experiencing. Moshe, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for, for adding some clarity to this. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Anytime. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's an interesting op-ed piece that was published in the National Post by conservative leader Aaron O'Toole. Uh, that suggests that it's time for us to put the flags back to full staff and uh, and talk about reconciliation in another form. Uh, there's some concern, of course, in some circles that if they were to do that, uh, is that going to be slap in the face to Indigenous people? You know, they, Could that be construed as, okay, I guess that's long enough, now let you move on to other things and forget about reconciliation. Uh, I'm I, not so sure that that's a valid argument, but it's one that some people seem to hold. I want to bring Tasha Curitan into the conversation. Tasha, Chris, is a principal at Navigator and a lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Uh, Tasha, great to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Well, thank you, Bill. Yes, I am. Let's, let's talk about the flag issue. And uh, Right off the top, I, I, as I said, I, I think there was general consensus when the prime minister said we're going to lower all flags to half staff. But invariably, when a policy like that is enacted, uh, there's usually a time frame for it. And that never really happened, did it? No, we did not. And um, I think that, uh, you know, partly because the election uh, happened, I think there was perhaps an unwillingness to deal with it. Um, maybe people didn't expect the flags to stay lowered for the entire five months that they've been. Um, it's it's kind of hard to say. Uh, flags were also lowered for uh, Reconciliation Day on the 30th of September, some other flags that may have been, you know, raised in the meantime. So we've got a situation now, as you said, coming into Remembrance Day, a day when traditionally the flag is up and then lowered for veterans and obviously then raised again, but lowered as a gesture to them. So if it's already lowered, you can't really do that. So the, the, the question is, what do we do? Um, do we bring it back up so we can do that and honor them as well? Uh, it's, it's a conundrum. And it's interesting that O'Toole has waded into it, I think, uh, at this time. Yeah, it's an interesting op-ed piece. And, and I know it, it, it's it's... One of these things that some people are going to look at is, is, is something that's going to be very contentious, but I'm not so sure if, if people are trying to build this up uh, to something that it isn't at this stage. I mean, as you say, it's been a number of months now that this has been in place. Uh, and some of the Aboriginal leaders I've talked to in the last little while, Tasha, are, are saying it was it was a nice gesture, and that's the word they used, was gesture at the time. Uh, but, you know, go ahead and raise the flag again, because not, we're not looking for gestures now. We're looking for action, and, and there's not a whole lot of that going on. 
Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the thing, really, I think that this should be about, uh, you know, Parliament only comes back uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, it's taken its sweet time, as the Prime Minister has, to bring it back. And that's really, you know, where the action will be in terms of uh, implementing recommendations in the various reports, uh, including those of missing uh, Indigenous women uh, murdered and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and also the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Um, and O'Toole calls for some specifics in that report to, to be implemented going forward. We also have the whole controversy about the lawsuit regarding compensation for Indigenous children. So there's a lot going on at this time, but you're right. I mean, I've been reading on this as well uh, in terms of reactions from Indigenous communities, and there are many leaders saying, you know what, um, it would actually, you know, we have we have relatives who were serving in, in the Canadian military. It would actually be dishonoring them, Indigenous relatives who served, as well as all others, if we don't raise it and then lower it. So enough with the gesture. Like you said, let's get to the action, raise the flag, and get on with it. Yeah, well, if they were waiting, and I don't know what their mindset is or what they, their, you know, was going on in their heads, uh, if they were waiting to, to do this along with some announcement about some, you know, progress that was being made, some standard progress was being made, uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, as you say, the Truth and Reconciliation Report is still sitting there, and they've talked about uh, adopting some of the recommendations, and they haven't done a very good job of that. Uh, and, and as long as they keep, you know, <laughs> appealing, uh, you know, the, the Human Rights Tribunal's decision about compensation, yeah. uh, I mean, they're going down the wrong road here. And I mean, this, and when, in, in so doing, they're making the, the gesture of, ro- of lowering the flags seem less and less significant almost d- by the day. Yeah, the government said it's in negotiations, which, you know, traditionally in a lawsuit, you, you try and settle things out of court um, instead of going to court. That's usually what, what you attempt to do. And in this situation, the government said that they are doing that uh, in the background, but that they have to press ahead with the appeal anyway. Um, I, I think that, yes, to, to your point, um, the appropriate thing to do would be to say, look, uh, we've had court rulings on this. Let's let's formalize some kind of arrangement um, and be done with it and bring the flags back up so that they can be lowered for other circumstances as well. I think the initial lowering, um, and some people individually have made the choice to keep it down too. We're not just talking government buildings. Yeah. You drive around, you see flags that are still at half, half staff um, on a variety of places, and people can choose to do that individually if they wish to, but the government has to make a statement formally for itself, and I think the flags should go up. But like you said, the concrete step should happen, and the place to start would definitely be with this ruling and the fact that the government, you know, really, I think it, it's fighting a losing battle. Uh, it should just settle it, yes, um, and, and state that it's, that is the, the path that's going to go down, that it's not going to, to proceed to appeal. I mean, if there is some concern within the government right now uh, that some Aboriginal groups may take this as a, as a slight that they've raised the flag, like, okay, I guess that's been long enough now. Uh, as I say, the, the, the solution to that is, is quite simple. I mean, uh, you know, this is free advice uh, for the government. Uh, just yeah. do something positive yeah. uh, about truth and reconciliation. And, and part of that, of course, is accepting the truth. Uh, you know, I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when the prime minister was uh, getting a presser about this, and he talked about the fact that the government was turning over all the records of what happened. Well, they haven't. That that was an incorrect statement at that time. They haven't done anything to correct that either. I mean, there's there's a path for them here to show that there's going to be some positivity here, uh, but they don't seem to be taking it. No, and I think that, you know, obviously this week, COP26 is overshadowing the government's agenda or dictating government's agenda. The prime minister wants the environment to be front and center. 
Um, but, you know, uh, the, the fact is the calendar has its own accord as well. And, and um, you know, November 11th is coming. What's going to happen? So they can't neglect uh, what's happening at home because of what's happening in Glasgow. I think that, you know, he's got to be able to show that he can do two things at once. And I think, like you said, a statement on Indigenous reconciliation would be a signal that, you know what, we're going to raise the flags, but we're going to do something real and show that progress. And then everyone would, you know, this issue would go away and we could proceed with Remembrance Day in a way that it's traditionally been done and also know that something's been done for Indigenous communities. I mean, what we're looking for here, and I think that was one of the messages, isn't it, that, that I think Canadians gave uh, this government during the last election, is, is that we're looking for a government that can walk and chew gum at the same time. I, I totally agree that COPS 26 and the environment, sure, and I know the Prime Minister's uh, trying to take a leadership role at that conference, so that's, I guess, an assessment that we'll we'll make after the conference is over. Uh, but Minister Miller is still here. I mean, the folks who have been charged with the new cabinet with with uh, dealing with some of these issues are still uh, terra firma here in Canada, uh, and they could and should be making some of progress and some announcements here. I mean, if it's good, a good news announcement, why not? I mean, I, yeah. I, I think the government would gladly share the front page of, a, of the newspaper or the lead story in a newscast uh, with, with positive news about truth and reconciliation. Well, you would think. And also, again, it goes to the point of how much of a team is this? Um, you know, the prime minister, uh, it's interesting, Melanie Jolie, the new foreign affairs minister, did not go to COP26. The argument's being made, oh, well, you know, she needs to be briefed up, which I absolutely believe. But, of course, um, you know, he's had already um, over a month to make his cabinet. You'd think that maybe, maybe uh, some of this briefing could have happened before, uh, you know, uh, before the formal announcement that she's in the role didn't happen. Okay. Is he, you know, is he still taking up all the oxygen publicly? To your point, there are very capable ministers on the ground here who could be making these announcements. They could be doing this at the same time. It would not detract from his agenda and his appeal to the international community. If anything, I think it would strengthen it and say, look, you know what? We are our commitments to the indigenous communities who are very concerned about the environment, by the way. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking action on that. It would actually strengthen his I think his bona fides with an international audience to show that, like you said, chewing gum at the, and walking at the same time and doing something for uh, a community that really does care about the environmental issues he's championing uh, in Glasgow. Just picture in your mind. I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that all governments are simply talking, you know, but uh, photo ops. Uh, but it's 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 a consideration I know in some circles. Uh, if the Prime Minister were to stand up there in Glasgow with Canadian Aboriginal leaders and say, listen, we're partnering on this initiative mm -hmm. uh, because these were the guys that took the lead on this. You know, we need to follow their example and we're going to do that. Uh, because one of the, the, the millstones around this government's neck is as the previous government, I'm going back to the Harper government for that matter, too. Uh, when you look at the international affairs and that, for instance, you know, our, our tentative relationship with China right now, it's, a lot of that is based on human rights uh, problems in that country. And every time we raise that issue, whether it was the Prime Minister Harper or Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, we get pushback from them saying, yeah, well, look what you're doing to your own people. Uh, until they yeah. cure this problem and solve this problem, Tasha, we're not going to be respected with a voice when it comes to things like human relations or environmental issues or anything else because of what we're doing here at home. Yeah, I think, you know, you you should be in charge of the Prime Minister's photo ops and what you said. Oh, please don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> don't quit your day job, right? I, I uh, Honestly, I think that you make an excellent point, and it would be something. One of the, one of the reasons, for example, it's interesting just talking about COP26, as we, as we have in the last minute or two here, um, you know, uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta is objecting very much to the Prime Minister's announcements and his, his statements on the international scene, 
one of the reasons that that's not carrying as much currency as it would is because of the way Kenny managed COVID and the disastrous situation in Alberta in the last 18 months. He's lost a lot of popularity. Well, it, that's the lesson here is that, you know what, um, unless you walk the walk and do what you're supposed to do, you're not going to, when you start complaining or you start saying anything about what other people are doing, no one's going to listen to you. Trudeau should do the same thing. Um, we've had inaction on so many issues for Indigenous uh, Canadians and Indigenous uh, nations in Canada that he has neglected. If he took some of that action, he'd be stronger on the other stuff that he is promoting. He would look like a leader who really has, like you said, walked the walk and there'd be less criticism. China couldn't level the criticisms it does, even though they're honestly, I think, spurious compared to what they do. But the point is, they wouldn't be able to do that if he was taking this action. So you're right. Um, should he have brought Indigenous leaders to uh, to Glasgow and made a statement there? I think it would have been an excellent occasion to do that and strengthen Canada's position on the world scene. We were having a discussion just before you joined us about uh, the uh, the failed piece of legislation that died in the order paper, of course, uh, the then-Heritage Minister Jabot's attempt uh, to, to control uh, some of the, the ugly stuff we see on the Internet. And, and now that Minister yeah. Rodri Pablo Rodriguez is in charge of that, and we were just saying this is an ideal opportunity for the government to simply say that was then, this is now, this is a new mandate. Uh, we're gonna, we've learned. We're going to do things better. We're going to do things differently. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and that's saying we got the message from the Canadian people that we we need to work together, and we're going to you know hit the pause button on this, and we're going to reconsider this and do this right. Uh, and I think that's what Canadians are looking for, whether it comes to Indigenous rights, environmental policies, whatever the case might be. We'll take a pivot here. And without, mm -hmm. I mean, there's always going to be people that are going to criticize government. That's what they do. But they'll say, hey, good move. Uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to be too trite here, but, you know, that cliche that it's never too late to do the right thing. Uh, we're waiting for them to, to make that pivot and say, yeah, well, you know what? We probably didn't take the right approach last time. We're going to do better this time. And that's what they're looking for with this issue, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. And uh, to your point on C-10, I mean, that will come back at some point. Um, I am yeah. hearing that, that that will come back in some form. But um, it's exactly that. It's, it's putting the thoughtfulness in and um, showing that you can do you can manage more than one file at a time. This government's had issues, I think, um, with doing that. It's not it's not good at multitasking. Um, you know, when Donald Trump was in office, uh, the entire obsession of the government, of, I mean, many countries were obsessed with what Donald Trump was doing. But the issue was, of course, NAFTA um, and what was going to happen after NAFTA, uh, you know, renegotiation. It sort of overshadowed a lot of other domestic issues, including, ironically, I think, indigenous issues in Canada. So much attention was diverted to that one international file. Well, now we're seeing kind of the same thing. Everything's being devoted. Okay, it's climate week. I get it. But still, you've got to be able to do more than one thing at once. And these things are related. So, you know, get your ministers, get your new cabinet to, to get into action because they're there for you. It's not all about Trudeau, as we learned. And in fact, you talk to a lot of, um, you know, candidates, liberal candidates. There was not the same kind of love for the prime minister at the door in the last election. Mm -hmm. I think he would do well to spread that love to his team. And, you know, people like Krista Freeland, people like Mark Miller, like you said, they're very capable. They, they should be the ones who are, who are taking more of a role in, uh, in this government in a public way. And it's not sharing the spotlight. I mean, if some people want to characterize it like that. It's letting the ministers do We're their job. The I mean, if, th yeah. Those people along the front bench there are supposed to be very capable. Yeah. And, and even, you know, I'm... <laughs> going to hold Stephen Harper up here because everybody looked at him as the ultimate control freak, uh, but he let Jim Flaherty be the finance minister. I, th I, I understand that. I, I know eventually uh, the conflict in, in philosophy between the two probably cost Flaherty his job just before he unfortunately died. 
but he let these guys, John Baird, when he was on the international stage, he let Baird be that guy. Uh, I think the prime minister, not step aside, but he has to let these people do their jobs and, and take over the and show that they, they are in charge of these portfolios. Yeah, I think so, too. And especially since, you know, this is a minority government situation, um, there's going to be a lot of give and take with the opposition that's going to have to happen to get things through. I mean, yes, no one wants an election in the short term, but I don't see the government lasting more than two to three years, three years at the very outside. So, you know, um, he's got to to show that there are strong actors apart from himself um, to really show the government's hand and say, hey, you know, we, we are a strong team. Here's what we're going to do. Here's our agenda. It is ambitious. And they do have an ambitious agenda, I think, on many, many fronts. I mean, you know, from, from child care to climate, uh, people are looking for action from the government. And post-pandemic economic recovery is a big one. Affordability, housing, I mean, you name it. They've made a lot of promises to deliver. You need a lot of boots on the ground. A lot of, you know, the team has to work and not just showcase the prime minister. Tasha, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Well, Thank you very much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Tasha Keratin, of course, principal at Navigator and a lecturer at uh, the university, at McGill University, rather, the School of Public Policy there. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Inflation. And, you know, we were always of the opinion that uh, that once the pandemic started to die down, and, and please God, I think we're at that stage, although we're still experiencing it, uh, as the economy started to open up. Uh, that things were going to get fine. People were going to go back to work. Uh, prices were going to level off. And, and, you know, we're not going to necessarily pick up where we left off, uh, but we're going to be in much better shape. Well, it's not happening the way that people had anticipated. Uh, prices are going up. Inflation is a concern right now. Uh, the president of the Bank of Canada is concerned about this. Uh, certainly uh, those who supply food and, and other goods to us are supply chain uh, conscious about what's happening. And we're seeing rising prices. Well, uh, a new report out uh, indicates right now that uh, if you're looking for relief from some of those higher grocery prices, it's not going to happen anytime soon. In fact, uh, it might actually be going the other way. Uh, interesting announcement here from the Canadian Dairy, Dairy Commission, which is recommending an 8.4% increase in farm gate meal prices. That's a larger hike than had been anticipated. Other products are, are in similar situations. So what are we going to do as consumers? And, and what can government do, if anything, to try to, to assist us in here and try to get it back on some even keel? I want to bring Janet Music into the conversation. Janet is a research program coordinator with the Agri-Food Analytics uh, Lab Faculty of Management at Dalhousie University. Uh, Janet, a pleasure to have you back on the program today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about these numbers, first of all. As I mentioned in the preamble just before you joined us here, uh, I don't think a lot of us saw this coming. I mean, we weren't anticipating inflation as one of the the net results, of course, of coming out of the pandemic. Uh, but I guess with supply chain issues and things of this nature, uh, it's happening right now. But even the fact that it's happening, are you surprised at how rapidly the prices have gone up? Well, to be frank, nothing really surprises me after <laughs> we've experienced a global pandemic. Um, I think in some respects, we did respect, um, expect this to happen. Um, but like you said, it has been a little bit higher than I think most people want. And it is happening fast, which can be alarming, especially if you're, you know, underemployed or precariously employed or, you know, have a large family. Well, you want to put food on the table, right? And, and your point's well taken. I mean, not everybody's back to full employment right now. Uh, 
you know, we're, we're starting to improve things in Ontario, right? But, but uh, you know, we're not financially where we were before. There's some concern about that. Those who still feel as if they need uh, some government assistance programs to get back on their feet economically are, are fully cognizant of the fact that uh, there's a sunset clause on just about all of those programs right now. So that's not going to be with us forever. And, and when they see stuff like this, uh, that higher prices are going to be with us for quite some time, it looks like, into the future right now, uh, I can see there's some concern here with the with, with families and saying, how are we going to be able to cope with this? Yeah, that's right. And so I think it's what's interesting about, you know, the dairy announcement is that it almost implies that the dairy sector is somehow special, but it's actually across the board. You know, we talked recently about bacon, um, you know, beef prices, center of the store, you know, cooking oil. And, you know, I think when it comes to dairy, you know, that plays a big life, uh, a big piece in people's dietary lives, right? So, you know, I can see why dairy especially would be alarming to consumers. Well, because we're, I guess, not just impacted by it, but we're cognizant of it. I mean, I have been accused of of not paying attention to prices, and and you know, you know, I'll come back from the grocery store. My wife said, "Well, how much was uh, was you know the butter or whatever?" I, said, I don't know. He said, "We need a butter. I don't got butter." I just but now I'm paying attention uh, because because we're seeing that the the increases here are significant in just about everything. As you say, I know that the, this report talks about the dairy industry and the products that we're buying in that section of the grocery store. Uh, but the price of bread has gone up. The price of meat has, has, has skyrocketed in some circles. Uh, is it all supply chain or is there something else going on here? It's certainly supply chain, um, which, you know, has been brought on by COVID-19. And so, you know, if you think about some of those commodities or even the packaging some of our products come in, those are all shipped from other places around the globe. And so things have been caught up in ports for sure. But I also think we can't um, forget about some of the climate change-driven uh, weather patterns that we've experienced in Canada just this past year alone. So drought-like conditions out west and wildfires in California, all of those things kind of work together to shorten the supply. Um, and then, of course, there's increased demand from Canadians as we've reached our vaccine kind of thresholds and we start going back out to restaurants and, and celebrating with friends and, you know, eating more food. All of these things kind of work together to rise, to raise prices. The, yeah, the numbers here are, are, well, we should say troubling, I suppose. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois, uh, of course, the analog at Dahousie, uh, one of your uh, confederates, has talked about uh, perhaps a 10% increase in the price of milk and dairy products like butter, cheese, and yogurt, uh, maybe even as high as 15% in the short term. Uh, what are we looking for here to try to find some relief on this? Are we just hoping that the supply chain issues work themselves out, or is there something more that we can do to try to, to circumvent what seems to be a, a growing problem here? Well, for those of us who have the luxury of just paying more at retail, we will do that to keep consuming the goods that we love, right? And so, you know, if we love cheese and we can afford it, we're going to keep buying cheese. But I think now more than ever, we're starting to see some products that rival uh, some of those things that didn't have rivals before. So, you know, maybe oat milk or soy milk or almond milk to put in your coffee, Perhaps that's going to be cheaper in the short run. And, and Canadians can switch now. When 
there really wasn't an alternative to dairy in the past. Even five years ago, you really didn't have a significant alternative. Um, but it's not just dairy. You know, families or, or people with many kids, they're going to have to change their shopping habits. And so they're going to start price comparing and going to more than one retailer. The people are couponing now in ways that we, we weren't uh, in the recent past, but, you know, coming back. And I think people are going into the store and collecting those Enjoy Tonight products. So especially at the meat counter, you can get really good discounts. And then at the end of the day, we're just going to have to not buy as much. It just won't be possible um, for some people. It's. I, I don't know if we're going to go back to those days, but just as you were describing that, though, Janet, it reminded me of, uh, I, I guess it was a long, long time ago, not that long ago, I suppose, for those of us that had to experience it, uh, where you do your grocery shopping was like an, an all-weekend exercise. You know, you'd look at the flyers, you'd look at, you know, the the, the, the ad for Sobeys, and here's the, 14, the Loblaws ad, and, and on and on, and say, okay, I can get my meat here, but I'm going to have to get the dairy products over here because they're a little bit cheaper. Or to the, so you're actually going to three or four different stores. Uh, and like you say, and, and looking for coupons and, you know, okay, there's 10 cents or 10% off that or something like that. Uh, I think a lot of us abandoned that sort of thing, but it kind of looks like we're heading back in that direction. That's right. And so we know from just before the pandemic, when we were looking at this, that convenience was kind of up there with price um, when people were going to the grocery store. And so, you know, if you're taking your kids to hockey or to soccer or, to you know, gymnastics, you know, you're not spending that time looking around trying to get the best deals because you're you're busy. You're very busy. Um, but now price is back on top as the main driver for how people are shopping, especially if they have a lot of people around the table. And so gone maybe are those days where you just go in on Saturday morning, you get a big load of groceries, and then you're done for the week. I think that people are going to change their behavior because it's just not going to be, it'll be too expensive to shop that way. And, and we're, I, I suppose here in Canada, uh, heading into what I guess is going to be the most problematic time of year. I mean, it's, it's heading towards winter. It's going to get cold here. Uh, we're not growing a whole lot of stuff in this country this time of year. So you're right. When you, if you want to talk about, well, fruits and vegetables, things of that ilk, uh, we're probably ex- importing an awful lot of that stuff. I mean, you know, you're going to buy tomatoes right now. And are they from Mexico? Are they from, you know, wherever in situations like that? And, of course, that means they have to be transported from wherever they're being grown up to here. And that's going to increase the cost. So we're, we're going to hit with a kind of a double whammy here, aren't we? That's right. And so we've been watching kind of the news on, on gas and oil prices and they're rising um, across the globe. And so that's not just from Mexico to Canada, but that's from trading partners in the Middle East and in Asia. So I don't think there's any escaping that. And you're right. In a, in a country like Canada, we have such a wide variety of fresh fruits and vegetables to us, available to us all year round. There is no other um, uh, option for them to be more expensive if we still want to consume them. What's this doing to the industry? Uh, what's this doing to farmers, for instance, uh, those who are producing these products? I mean, if we're not buying them, uh, and, and the, you know, as you say, that it's all about supply and demand. If the demand is not there, uh, they have to be concerned about their long-term future, too, I would think. And especially, as you mentioned, uh, because I've heard of this happening where people are starting to look for alternatives. You know, if, if milk is too expensive, well, let's look at some of the other things that are on there because there's no shortage of other products on the shelves right now that may actually act as substitutes. 
Yeah, I can only imagine that it must be demoralizing to be producing food in this economic climate. My, you know, I, I really feel for people all along the food chain, farmers and producers, everybody, including consumers, you know, you can't not eat. And farmers are consumers as well. And so it must be quite stressful um, knowing that if I'm if I'm to survive, I need to raise my prices, and that is going to affect other people. So I can't. I can only imagine how stressful this is for everybody involved. Um, and I don't know what comfort there is to say you know we're all in this together because it's not a comforting. <laughs> no, it's not really a comforting thing to say. And, and I guess, because I know your research at Dalhousie indicates that, uh, you know, the people in this industry, in the agriculture, the agri-food industry especially, uh, are facing some of the same challenges we've talked about in other sectors. I mean, you know, the the, the, the farmer that's, that's, you know, well, it's a dairy farmer, whatever the case might be. Uh, I mean, they've got costs. I mean, you know, have, there's the feed, there's the, the fertilizer costs, there's the, uh, the the equipment that they have to use here. I mean, that's, that stuff is not cheap. And those prices have gone up as, as well. Uh, which means there's an increased demand there. I mean, they want to produce this product. They want to make sure that there's going to be a market for it. If the stuff's not selling uh, and these guys are getting deeper and deeper in debt, you have to wonder about their viability too. Yeah, that's right. And and cynically, we call that market correction, right? You know, we don't really talk about the human cost of what's involved when the market is readjusting to these new climate conditions, both literally, literally and figuratively. Um, and so farming, not just dairy farming, but all farming is an investment. It's, you know, it's, it's not like it is presented, you know, in, in children's toys where the farmer is wearing overalls and he's got a little cow. And it's, these are, these are scientific operations that people invest a lot of money and, and time and their whole lives into. And so just, as we, you know, in the summer felt bad for food service workers, you know, and when they restaurants were closing and, and we, they were losing their jobs and having to take serve, we should also have room in our hearts for people who are running farms because it's the same situation for them, um, but they're largely hidden from us. Is there going to be pressure on government here to try to step in and, and try to alleviate this? I mean, uh, and, and I mean, in the past, they've offered subsidy programs to try to, to keep some of these farms operational. Uh, I, I know that, I guess now, because of the new NAFTA agreement and uh, how that was such a sticky point, the compensation and the, and the assistance for farmers, uh, a lot of the U.S. negotiators were kind of crazy about that. Are, are they running the risk, though, of, of contravening uh, some of the the, uh, the agreements in the new NAFTA, if they step in here and say we need to help the farming industry, especially the dairy industry? Yeah, it's super complicated. And, you know, I remember those talks, and it, that feels like a lifetime ago in some respects because we've been so consumed with staying safe in the pandemic. But those problems didn't go away. Um, and like other areas of society, I think COVID has really kind of shown where the weak spots are in some of the supply chain issues we have in this country. And so, you know, the government has offered subsidies in the past, and they've offered subsidies to those aforementioned restaurant workers the past year. And so if if, if one section of society is worthy of, of subsidies, then shouldn't we all be, I guess? Um, I luckily don't have to make those decisions, but, um, you know, in some respects, 
food is too big to fail, right? So it's not like we can just close down all the farms across Canada and we'll just import it all. It's just not feasible. And so how they step in will be interesting to, to see. And, and I know that there are attempts here. I mean, you know, there's a big move towards earth to table in many communities, and that's a good thing uh, to, to buy local and, and to do that. But as you say, because of the winter months, I know there's some hothouse uh, operations that are going on that are going to try to maintain some of the, the fruit and vegetables that we can still pick up and maybe get them locally. But for the most part, uh, we're going to be concerned about that. And, and you know, if you're, you're, you know, wandering into a restaurant for the first time in months thinking, okay, I want to support this sector. And you start looking, oh, my God, the prices have gone up. I mean, that may scare you off of that, too. So that this is this is not an isolated situation. This is affecting just about every part of the economic recovery, isn't it? It is. And, you know, we I know people are really um, enamored with that idea of local food and farm to fork, that idea. But, you know, in some respects, that will raise food prices because mm-hmm. when we're shipping in those fresh uh, produce from from Mexico or Chile, we're getting economies of scale. And so we're able to ship a lot of um, produce in um, for a lower price because there's just so much of it. Um, But if you're just getting uh, your vegetables from a local farm, well, that farmer needs a living wage and is not able to produce the sheer amount of produce that we can get from multiple farms in the South. So we have to be careful when we think about local food being better because it may be closer, but it could also serve to rise prices. But in terms of the overall economy, you're right. Everything everything is actually being affected by oil prices especially. Um, and, and food prices will play a significant role in the health and well-being of families because um, a bigger chunk of their paycheck is going to have to go through uh, retailer, food retailers, which leaves less money for, you know, clothing or vacations or school supplies, you name it. It's uh, it's going to have an impact. Uh, we're so thankful that uh, that you guys are doing the research that you do at Dalhousie, of course, with the uh, agri-food analytics uh, to bring us up to speed on what's happening. And, uh, well, we'll see just how, if uh, any government uh, response to this is going to maybe offer some sort of relief. Uh, Janet, a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us and uh, for all the stats on this uh, to help us uh, understand exactly what's happening. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Yes, you too. Janet Music, uh, who is a research program coordinator at Dalhousie University with the Agri-Food Analytics Lab faculty there. And uh, we've uh, tapped into their expertise so many different times here to try to get a read on what's happening. But uh, you've noticed this if you've been to the grocery store. Prices are going up. And according to these uh, results, uh, it's going to stay that way for the foreseeable future anyway. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.